Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I get to walk us through this text tonight. You know, when people talk about maybe the Bible's boring or whatever, they're not talking about this chapter, which seems like a scene out of a movie like Braveheart or something like that. You know, it's people getting hacked to pieces, uh, devoting folks to destruction, lying, cheating, stealing, swindling. Anyway, it's a, there's a lot going on here, and we're going to get to that. This is my first time preaching after going on vacation. I, I really enjoy vacation. I recommend it as often as possible. I think we should do it. And you know, my, my favorite thing to do is to go and just do nothing, right? I feel like my whole life is run by my Google Calendar, uh, and it's nice to not have my life run by a calendar. You just go and sit there and do nothing. But every now and then I can be pressured into doing something. Uh, but I, we're sitting there about Tower 18 on Mission Beach in San Diego and sitting around not doing much. And I kept noticing there's like no, nobody in the water right in front of us. And I was thinking, why is there nobody in the water right in front of us? And then I saw like some seven-year-olds with boogie boards go and get in the water in front of us. And the lifeguard comes down from the lifeguard tower, runs over and says, hey, don't go swimming here. Uh, it's a bad move. There's, there's two like converging riptides. So it's like extra dangerous. And there's this big hole there. And so we got to get out of there. And so the seven-year-olds left. And then you know, about 40 minutes later, a group of nine-year-olds came, same thing. Oh, you can't swim here, don't swim here. It's a bad move, don't swim here. And after the lifeguard had told those nine-year-olds, I don't have to the lifeguard, and it's like, hey, is it like a suggestion that we not swim here, or is it like the law that we not swim here? And he looked at me like, what's wrong with you? Don't swim here, it's dangerous. And I was like, like is that like a rule for children, or does that like include me, an adult, uh, who's like responsible and goes to the gym and stuff, you know, and he's like, uh, he said, if you go in there, we're going to pull you out, so please don't. I was like, so you're asking me, or is like, what, what's the situation on how, how much of the rule is, so anyway, about an hour later, me and three buddies go swimming, <laughs> he's like, hey, let's try and swim, one of my buddies, the negative influencer of the group, is like, hey, let's try and swim out past the breakers, go to that buoy, I'm like, okay, sounds good, so we start swimming, and then the three of us are swimming, and then um, one of them about halfway out turns around and goes back and I'm like, nice, so I'm at least getting silver in this competition of egos, you know, and so I'm swimming back. And then, then the other guy turns around and goes back after we get past a good place. And I'm like, all right, if you need to turn back, that's fine. So I keep going. Um, and then I turn around because I lasted longer than the other two guys did. And then so I turn around and I start swimming back and I don't know how far we are, but nobody's ever accused me of like having a swimmer's body or being a good swimmer. You know, nobody would look at me and be like, I bet that guy can swim. Look at those Michael Phelps arms. That's never, never happened. So I'm swimming and uh, right when I turn around to go back, I look at the lifeguards and they had pulled their little ATV up and it was parked right in front of me. And they're just sitting on their surfboards looking at me. All disappointed and my life choices. And I'm like, well, you know, they want a good show. I'm going to show them how I can do this. You know, so I'm swimming and then like, I don't know, five minutes goes by and I realized I've gone nowhere. <laughs> I don't know how to swim in the ocean. Like, you're supposed to go sideways. I learned that after this fact. You know, you, if you get stuck, you go sideways and you get out of it. So I'm there swimming and I'm going nowhere. And all of a sudden, my legs start feeling heavy and like I, I start thinking, I gotta focus on your breathing, which means you're totally in bad shape. If you're focusing on your breathing, anytime you're focusing on your breathing, something good's not happening. So I'm focusing on my breathing. And then I see them just staring at me and I'm thinking, you know what? I don't need to be saved but I wouldn't resist being saved, you know? So <laughs> I'd be okay with it if it happened. So then the guy gets on his little surfboard and paddles on out to me and pulls up next to me and he goes, how's it going, bud? <laughs> so I'm like, how's it look like it's going? You're here, I don't know what to tell you. And he's like, so you want any help or you want to keep doing this, you know? And 
So anyway, I put my hands on the surfboard, got saved, pulled out. I was, so I, tell, I was telling them, some of my buddies, like, you got saved. I was like, I didn't need to be saved, but I, like, I appreciated it. You know, so it was, <laughs> you know, the, the whole idea of believing that you are the exception is, uh, tends to be a problem, right? And so we, like, I, especially, like, for, for me, I'm not the most, like, someone, like, tells me a rule, I kind of go like, well, who says, you know, and, and, what, and, what, what, and I would try to go like, well, does this apply in every case or most cases? And I'm just kind of a natural authority resistor, which is mostly, I think, a bad thing in most situations. But I, I feel like when I talk to folks here, when I talk to myself, you know, I mean, not like talk to myself, when I think to myself and go back and forth, I, there's just this natural thing in the human heart to go, uh, we see the words of God and we go, is this a suggestion or is this a command? You know, is, is God suggesting, like, hey, be nice if, could you please? Or is this, like, word of the Lord, command, uh, sink or swim, do or die type stuff? Are these, are these laws for everybody, or are they, like, for children who can't really make their own choices? And I think part of the reason why 1 Samuel 15 is a scary text to me is not because of the violence, which I think is obvious, but it's because of the fact that nobody gets away with anything and there are no exceptions. It doesn't matter if you're king of Israel, doesn't matter if you're king of the Amalekites, doesn't matter if you're a people group like the Amalekites, like you don't get away with stuff. It doesn't matter how much military power you have, doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter your track record, doesn't matter uh, your family's track record, you just don't get away with stuff. And there are no exceptions. And so I hope that we as Gateway can look at this text and kind of sit with this reality that nobody gets away with anything and there are no exceptions. I'm not an exception. You're not an exception. It might take a minute. It might take a generation. It might take a while. But what is in the dark will be in the light. And on that day, uh, what's going to be your defense? What's going to be your source of security, what's going to be your source of these things. And so what we see, we're going to look at this in pretty three phases. One, the Amalekites don't get away with it. Two, Saul doesn't get away with it. And three, Agag doesn't get away with it. And ultimately we're going to see that none of us do either. All right, so let me pray and then we'll walk through this text. Lord, have mercy on us. I do ask that we'd see in your word uh, both your patience and your absolute insistence on perfect justice. I pray that we'd feel both convicted and encouraged in this text. In your name we pray, amen. So first things first, a little bit about the Amalekites. Uh, Amalek, the city, the Amalekites, the people, they don't get away with it. So thus says the Lord of hosts, chapter 15, verse 2, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. So the Amalekites, if you back up in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, they're there being terrible terrorist-type people. They're raiders, bandits, pillagers. Um, they they uh, you know, rape and plunder and pillage people when they're at their weakest. These are not good folks. Actually, in World War II, uh, some of the way that the Hasidic Jews talked about the Nazis was that they called them the Amalekites. Amalekites, because the Amalekites became a metaphor for all those people who oppress or stand against uh, the people of Israel. And so we see Amalekites and Agag, and we should kind of think for modern minds, uh, Nazis, Hitler. Like these are not good folks. They've not been good. They're not going to be good. Uh, later on, we see them later in the, bo- in the book of 1 Samuel continuing to be committed to their ways of raping, pillaging, and murdering. They're not great folks. And here, God is saying, I have noted what Amalek did. This should make us pause that God takes notes on evil. He has notes. It's written down. He doesn't forget. 
I think one of the hardest things for me uh, living as a Christian in modern society is some version of this. How come they keep getting away with it? How come the traffickers keep being able to traffic? How come the oppressors keep being able to oppress? How come the thieves keep stealing? How come the murderers keep murdering? How come the abusers keep abusing? How do these people keep getting away with it? How does this go on? And here's what we see in this text is the Lord God has noted what Amalek did, that he has notes on all these evils. That when you believe in the God of justice, when you believe in the God who is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-everywhere, we can rest in this fact that we may not see justice finally executed, but we can know that nobody's getting away with anything, period. This is what actually enables Christians to be the type of people who turn the other cheek. It's because vengeance belongs to the Lord, and He owns it, and He has it, and He intends to make use of it. He's not one of those people who just stores up weapons and then does nothing with them. He's one of those people who stores up vengeance and plans to execute it. And God here is saying, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way to Egypt. He's going, and this is multiple generations ago. Sometimes you don't see justice delivered or executed for multiple generations. The Amalekites know what their fathers did. They know what their grandfathers did. And they've done nothing to repair it and done nothing to make it better. And they've continued in their grandfather's footsteps. And then God says this to them. Now go and strike Amalek. And devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman. Ooh, out. Child and infant, really don't like that. Ox and sheep, camel, donkey. I don't care about those things, so that's fine. But you, I don't know if you're like me, you read that, kill the women and the children and the infants, and you go, ooh, I don't like that at all. That feels bad. And I just want to say, that kind of should feel bad. That's okay if that feels bad. But how do we make sense of that? What's going on here? And so... Uh, I want to give us a framework for thinking about this. So, one, when God is telling Saul to go and destroy everything in there, uh, when we see man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, this is kind of an ancient nation way of saying, kill everything that moves. You might have heard that phrase before in military context. Go into that built like in this happens in the movies. Go in there, anything that moves, kill it. And so it's, it's a way of saying everything that moves. Anything that's breathing or moving in that place needs to be laid to waste. So it's, it's not being specific, saying kill these six things and all other types of things. It's saying kill all types of things. Secondly, we see that this is a little bit of a form of trash talk or smack talk. Like when I'm uh, going to do a workout against someone, so I'm also not good, I'm not good at swimming, I'm also not good at running. At my gym, whenever there's running in the workout, kind of the joke is like, well, Seth's going to come in last and it's going to be a frustrating day for him because I'm not a very good runner. But one time, there's this person in our gym that I beat in a running workout. It was like a happy day for me. And I tell her all the time, remember when I destroyed you in that running workout that one time? I, I wiped the floor with you. I trashed you. Why'd you even come back to this gym? You know, and so, and because she beats me every other time. And so then it's not fun to trash talk when you win every time because it's just demoralizing. But you hang on to that one little thing, you know, and you just poke it. It's so there's, there's a, this is kind of ancient, ancient Near Eastern way of like for antiquity writing down, yeah, the Amalekites have gotten the best of us, but guess what? Uh, not every time. Third, when it says, go to the city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. So the city of Amalek, we think about cities and they're different in the ancient than they are today. When we think city, we think like Queen Creek, like there's all this metropolitan populous area. But city in the ancient is probably more like a military garrison. Like there's Williams Air Force Base used to be what 
Gateway Airport is now. It'd be more like the city is attacking Williams Air Force Base. And yeah, they're the, the women and children in like the village behind the Air Force Base. But what we're laying waste to is not all the general population, but you're laying waste to a military garrison in particular. So there's, it's, this is military activity, military strategy. Lastly, what we see here is that Saul announces to the Kenites and announces to the people, you know, 210,000 people have rolled up on this military garrison. It's not unclear what is about to happen. This is like a scene from Lord of the Rings when all these people come marching up, like, what are they up to? Are they here to bring us a welcome gift? No, they're here to do something to us. And they announce, hey, we're coming in to destroy everybody that's inside. You have time to get out. So they give the Kenites, who are kind of like Airbnb uh, at this place. They're not really living there. They're just kind of hanging out for a little bit. You have time to get out if you want. And so the Kenites leave. Most likely, commentators say that all the women and children would have left along with the Kenites, and all that would have been left is the military people. And so odds are that basically none or no women and children are actually killed in this situation, and if they, uh, like they were given the chance to get out and run away. This is military action and with metaphorical implications. So there's destroying these people and all the men and all the people who are kind of prone to the raping, pillaging, murdering, destroying of things. And so that's what God is telling them to do. So go out and destroy these people. I, I took notes on what happened and devote them to destruction, uh, knock them out. And Saul obeys halfway. He takes 200,000 men, goes there, says, get rid of them all. And then it says that the Kenites departed and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So the Amalekites go on existing. We see them later on. Even the book of Esther, you might remember this if you've read the book of Esther, that there's this evil character named Haman who is terrible. He was trying to orchestrate a genocide of the Jews. He's called an Agite or Agagite, meaning like in the way of King Agag, or he's an, he's an Amalekite. And so the Amalekites go on existing, go on competing like being genocidal maniacs and God's saying we're destroying this one military outpost of these people and this is a way of doing justice for past uh, evil. Saul defeats them. Everybody's happy. They win. But he only defeats them halfway. Which gets us to this next point. Which is even in halfway obeying, halfway doing the mission, Saul commits great sin. He takes the Lord's commands as suggestion, not as law. And then the question is, does Saul get away with it? We see this in verse um, uh, 12. <clears throat> uh, Samuel rose early to meet Samuel, Saul in the morning, and was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. He's celebrating how good he did, halfway obeying. And Saul comes to, Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says, blessed be you to the Lord. This is Saul relishing and pretending he did the right job. I have performed the commandment of the Lord, takes a bow. Samuel, the wise prophet, verse 14 says, hmm, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Oh, if you killed all the stuff, then what is that, you idiot? <laughs> like it's, it's not very, you know, it's kind of like when I tell my toddler, hey, go put this in the dirty clothes. And he kind of takes it and like throws it to the side and you're like, oh, did you do it? He's like, yes. And like, it's right there. So, Nice try. That didn't happen. So let's try again. You know, and, and so he's like, oh, yeah, I did the commandment of the Lord. Okay, well then, if you're supposed to destroy all the stuff that was marked by association with evil, uh, Saul's decided, you know what? I'm okay with profiting from evil. I'm okay with leveraging that. I know that this, this wealth was accumulated on the backs of injustice, and these people probably like stolen it from other people. And guess what? I'm okay with participating in this chain of doing immoral business. I'm just going to profit from it. I'm okay with it. I decided I did the math. And then he goes, yes, I obeyed the Lord. 
and does Saul get away with it? No, he doesn't, because one, Samuel's not dumb, and also God sees everything. And what we end up seeing here in Saul is actually this case study in disobedience. We learn a ton about him. But we also learn about this is not just a case study in disobedience, but also a case study in how God feels about our disobedience. I want to start there first. We looked at the hard text about kill all the women and children. Here's another tension I want us to see. First Samuel 15, verse 11. The Lord says this, I regret that I have made Saul king. First Samuel 15, verse 29. The glory of Israel, that's a way of saying God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. First Samuel 15, verse 35. And the Lord regretted he made Saul king. Okay, so you have this not regret sandwich. God regrets it. He says, absolutely not. I have no regrets. I'm not like a man. And then he says, I regret it. So what do we do with that? The Bible is contradicting itself all over in the exact same passage. What do you think? Well, the one option is to believe that we're the first smart people ever to read this. We discovered a contradiction. Another option is to go, you know what? The Bible is just written by a bunch of dummies anyway. Who cares what it's going on, you know? We deconstruct, pull it apart, you know, maybe you know, the Bible just pieced together by a bunch of people trying to control the masses. Maybe that's what happened. Another option. People, a lot of people choose that one. I think some, one of my beliefs is that that's not what we should do. So I'm going to help us walk, work through this. So regret, not regret. Uh, so whenever we see these kind of obvious tensions in Scripture, like very obvious, same chapter, same text, God is not like man. He has no regrets. And God says, I regret making Saul king. This is invitations into deep reflection and thought and, and ultimately an opportunity to embrace paradox. And here's what I mean by that. Is regret, that word regret could be translated, like the root of this word could be multiple different things. It could be translated regret, which it is. It could be translated change your mind, which is the way the NIV translate it, translates it. It could be translated repent. It could be translated grieve. It's the most common translation. That to be grieved, to, be, to mourn, to be moved to the point of like uncomfortability in the gut over some type of sadness. And that kind of closeness between grief and regret, I think, is how we under, should understand this passage. And my grandma passed away a handful of weeks ago, a handful of months ago. It's in the last couple months. And one of the things that surprised me about the grieving process, and I was pretty close with my grandma. I saw her probably once or twice a week for the last five years, ten years, and maybe as many as like two or three times a week. It felt like growing up, like she was very close, lived in Tempe, close to her. Uh, you know, she would have been sitting right there if, if I was preaching, right? Most of the time, some of you might have met her. But noticing how often grief felt like regret because you're going, man, if I knew that she was passing, so she, like, she got diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, 21 days passed away. Not a lot of time to like, so it's probably still mostly in semi-shock. You know, it's, it's pretty fast. Uh, but like the regret kind of, if I had all the information, what would I have done differently the last six months? If I had all the information, uh, the could have, the should have, the would have, the wish I would have, the, you know, you, you stop getting to know a person, you stop accessing the wisdom of a person, and there's like this, the sadness, the grieving feels like regret sometimes. Like in, and it's hard to distinguish between those two things. And I don't, so, and I don't necessarily feel like I did anything wrong. Right? Like I spent a good amount of time with her, but there is like the sense of if I knew everything, then I would have done this differently. But I didn't know everything. God, God, God gave us 21 days notice. And similarly, when 
when she ultimately passed, you know, she was told stage four cancer. Okay, well, everybody expects, like I expected to have to walk that path with my grandma. I expected to have to bury my grandma. Like there's the small chance that I would pass before her, but probably not. And it was, so I was not surprised, but I was very grieved and disappointed. Like it was very difficult. And even in the last couple like days of her life, you're expecting the death to come. You're expecting it to come. You know it's coming. And then you're still deeply grieved when it happens. And this is, I think, the tension that we're being brought into in this is that God tells the people of Israel, you don't want a king like the nations. And Israel goes, yes, we do. And God is going, I promise, no, you don't, but fine, here you go. And then what happens? God has this remarkable opportunity to have this devastating, I told you so moment. I knew it. You should have just listened to me. But instead of laying on the I told you so, God grieves. He's sad. I knew this was going to happen. I'm not surprised that it happened. And it still is making me sad. See, that's how God feels about your sin. That's how God feels about my sin. And that's how God feels about Saul's sin. He's grieving. And when it says here that he's not like a man, that he should have regret, what he's saying is, I don't have regrets like mankind has regrets. See, we all have regrets that are rooted in real, I should have done something different than what I did. Regrets that are sinful. Regrets are, I regret doing that foolish thing. I regret going swimming when the lifeguard told me that was a bad idea. I regret doing all these, like there's, there's real foolishness, real finitude, real sinfulness that we should be regretting. I, that I would not have done that if I was more soberly thinking, if I was more clearly minded. So we have some regrets and we grieve those things because if we had all the information or if we were smarter or less foolish, we wouldn't have done them. God has none of those type of regrets. God has all the information. God knows how it's going to go. And he still is emotionally affected by it. And I think this tension we see in Scripture is actually an invitation to know the most compelling and confusing parts of God, which is that how can God be infinite and personal? How can God be the author of history, surprised by nothing, and be an actor within history who's beside us experiencing history as it unfolds? How can God ordain all things and be grieved with us when we grieve? How can the God of the universe be caught off guard by nothing and at the same time be a person with us in the world? How can God have no regrets and have regrets? How can God have no grief and have grief? And I think the author of 1 Samuel is going, hold those two tensions, live there, don't let it go away. Because if you get rid of the God who is unsurprised, who's the author of history, who ordains all things, if you get rid of that, all you have is kind of a chaos manager who's doing the best he can. Kind of have like a, a parent who has eight kids. Some influence, no control. You're just kind of... Is that the God we serve? Some influence, no control, kind of corralling the troops as we go. Is that what you want? Is that, that's not the God that I serve. So if you lose the God who's overall history, the author of history, who's ordaining all things, you, you're left with this kind of God who's impotent, doing the best he can. But if you lose the personal God who's grieved, who, who, who has some form of regret, you just have this kind of artificial intelligent, you know, I did the math, I flicked the domino, things are unfolding, and, you know, que sera, sera, what will be, will be. Don't worry about praying because it's already been decided. But instead we have this God who is powerful and personal, who's author and actor, who's transcendent and imminent, 
who has no regrets and has regrets. That God grieves Saul, he grieves what's happening, and rather than laying on the I told you so, he mourns. How good is that? You know how many times God could tell me I told you so every day, and instead he's grieved? In the midst of God's grief, we get a case study in disobedience from Saul, that if you're looking to get more efficient in your disobedience, take notes, because this is how it's going to go. So we have 10 things about disobedience we see in this text. Number one, verse nine, disagree. But Saul spared Agag. He decided that God said something, and he's like, you know what? I know what God said. I disagree. I'm doing something else. Here's kind of a good baseline thing for all of us. If you disagree with God, it is your responsibility to change. Sometimes it takes work. Sometimes it takes a choice. But it's like the other week I saw these two toddlers who uh, my son was hanging out. They're one of them. None of them can read, but they're arguing over what the book says. You know, they all kind of half memorize the book. And I'm like, actually, the book says this. And both look at me and they're like, that's not what it says. And I'm like, okay, you tell me what the book says, you know. And, you know, and I want to be like, when you disagree with me, you change, you know. But they're toddlers. You can't really reason with them. So uh, first, first way to disobey is disagree with God. I know what he says. I don't think so. The next one is blame. See, in verse 9, it says, Saul and the people spared Agag. In verse 15, Saul says, those people, they have brought them up. The people spared the best. So he's like, it wasn't me, it was them. He's avoiding responsibility. Uh, you know, I know I was a part of it, but uh, it wasn't really them. It was, you know, I was unduly influenced. I was just kind of, you know, it was, it was them, it wasn't me. So you can blame people, avoid responsibility. Uh, number three, distance uh, yourself. This is when um, Saul says to Samuel, yes, I was going to offer sacrifices to the Lord, your God. He's no, no longer saying, I didn't disagree with God's voice. I disagreed with your God's suggestion. So this your God versus my God is a way of distancing that. It's, 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 it's you people's God, not mine. And so he's kind of, if I can emotionally distance myself from God, it's easier to continue disobeeding. Um, number four, we see rationalization. I did the math on this. Uh, I looked at the things that were good. So they, they're doing, they're examining this stuff. In verse 15, we see there's looking, look, there's this worthless stuff that we are okay with destroying, but there's this valuable stuff that we think that's pretty wasteful. You know, we should not be doing that. You know, that's, that's profitable stuff. You know, their spreadsheet says uh, good for business. So we went ahead and kept it. You know, we, ra- we, we thought through it and we considered and we decided God was wrong. We should not obey him. We should just do what we want. And so they, he rationalized it on the basis of um, his own perspective. Next one we see is to deny. Uh, he does this a couple times. He just says, I did obey. I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. Did he obey the Lord? No, he didn't. He just straight up denies it. This is just called lying, and it's the most obvious form of disobeying, and it's just, you're kind of like just digging yourself into a deeper hole. I know I did it, but I'm just gonna keep pretending I didn't do it, and you deny it and deny. And last thing we see there is justify, uh, verse six. Um, I did go on the mission, meaning I did go where he told me to go. I mean, I didn't do what he told me to do, but I did go where he told me to go. It's, It's partial obedience, It's just good for us to know that partial obedience is disobedience. This is kind of my life. You know, first time, right away, all the way. We don't say that part. We don't say the happy heart part because I'm okay with them being sad about it. I just want them to do it, you know. So (laughs) first time, right away, all the way. This is God saying, look. Going 95%, guess what that is? An F. There's no A's or A minuses. There's just 100%, 0%. 
on obedience. It says, pass, fail. And unless you're 100%, you fail. He goes, look, I did go on the mission. I just didn't do it all the way. I mean, yes, I did, I did this sin, but I didn't do that sin. I could have sinned more, but I sinned this much. Justifying on the basis of partial obedience. We see spiritualizing, which is a huge problem because you're taking the Lord's name in vain. I didn't do it for me, right? Uh, I didn't take Agag, the king of Amalek, for myself. You know why you capture the king and take him? It's a trophy. You know, like a lot of you have a bunch of participation trophies in your house, you know? Just kidding. Some of you have real trophies. But the participation trophy, you know, like, I did it. You know, we did it. Look at what I did. I accomplished something, right? Blue ribbon, red ribbon, pink ribbon, you know, Here's a trophy. That's why you capture the king. So you can, you know, parade them around and be like, look at this guy. Was a king. Now he belongs to me. This is Saul kind of soaking in glory, trophying his thing. But also he says, I didn't do that for me. I didn't do that for me. I didn't take these sheep and oxen. I didn't do it for me. I did it to sacrifice to the Lord. Which that is what makes Samuel the most mad. Because he's taking the Lord's name in vain. Do not say you did this for God. Don't say, yes, you cheat on your taxes, but you tithe more. Don't say, yes, you cut corners and rob people and, and, and misrepresented what you do and you char- overcharge for things you shouldn't be charging for, but, but you're going to tithe, so it's okay. Don't pretend that you can do good things to make up for your bad things. That's not how this works. He actually calls it divination or magic. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is iniquity. He gets so mad, he writes a poem in the middle of this tirade about how mad he is, and he's like, look, you don't get to manipulate God. That's not how it works. God doesn't have some scale. You have good deeds, bad deeds. That's not how this works. That's manipulating God. That's Harry Potter stuff. That is not the way the Lord of the universe works. You don't get to disobey and then just offer more sacrifices and call it good. That's not how this works. We don't atone for our evil by doing more good. It's not how it works with God. Number eight, fear the crowd. Okay, okay, this is what he says, verse 24. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I fear the people and obeyed their voice. I'm just afraid. It wasn't on me, you know. Saul's the king. He has 210,000 men following him. He's already spurred them on to victory. He's the thermostat. He's the culture maker. He's the tone setter. He's the anointed one. And here he is being squirrely about trying to please the crowds. I didn't really disobey. It wasn't on me. My kids wanted me to do it. Who's the parent here? <laughs> that's, that's kind of what Saul, Samuel's getting at. Dude, you're king. If you can overcome fear of people as king, what makes you think any of these other people can? Don't obey the voice of people. Next one we see is avoiding consequences. This is where Samuel keeps revealing, or Saul keeps revealing how truly not repentant he is. He, he starts to say, yes, I've sinned. He kind of confesses. Uh, and then he goes, you know what? Just pardon me and return with me that I can go back for the Lord. You know, I know I sinned, but just like say the magic words and let's go to church. That'll make it all better. And we can just forget this ever happened. Um, then at verse 30, he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. So he's saying, yes, I sinned. Yes, I rebelled, but don't Tell anybody else, keep this between you and me. Don't take away my position of leadership. Don't take away my kingship. Just let's just keep on going like it was. I don't want anybody to have any, like, yet, yes, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders. And return with me that they may bow, that I may bow before the Lord your God. I just want to go to church, make it all better. Let's pretend it's never happened. Don't take away my leadership position. Samuel's not having it. 
I think consequence avoidance is one of the main indicators we look for in our, in our pastoral care counseling ministry here. That if someone's still avoiding consequences of sin, it's kind of evidence that they're not really doing repentance. They're doing image management. Yes, I'll go through the motions to get you off my back. But consequences are teachers. They shape our heart. They help us. They're good for us. But actually, what's most loving a lot of the time is to let people experience consequences. Because it's part of what God uses to re- retrain our hearts. last we see is he doesn't repair it. Uh, True repentance would take responsibility to fix or solve or amend what you've done wrong. But here you see in verse 32, Samuel said, bring me to Agag, king of the Amalekites. Samuel goes, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. I will finish what Saul started. That Saul, if truly broken, would have gone, okay, Samuel, you're right. I sinned, I rebelled. I will devote to destruction, all the things that I should have done in the first place, let me repair the damage I've done. But instead, he's just going, please stop with the consequences. And Samuel goes, I'm gonna make sure that even if you won't obey the Lord, I'm gonna make sure that we obey the Lord and we're gonna do the right thing here. So Samuel calls him out. Samuel doesn't let Saul get away with it. So I read that list and I'm, uh, you know, tagged by every single one of those at some point. Like we read this text and we should not be like, I'm like Samuel, my spouse is like Saul. You know? I mean, the reality is, is your spouse is like Saul, but so are you, so am I. We all do this. This is a case study in disobedience. That like God gives us something to subdue and have dominion, have authority over, that we are you know, the, the under rulers of our life under God's authority, and we do this all the time. And here's one of the scary things about this Agag piece is that Agag has no idea what's coming and he kind of looks pretty dumb. So Samuel said, bring me here to Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Because <laughs> he's going, whew, everyone got the sword and I did it. I'm doing good, I made it. And he says, surely the time has passed. Surely the bitterness of death is past. Statute of limitations, right? I mean, let, the, like, let bygones be bygones, water under the bridge. We've, yeah, our people have had some problems, but like, good to see you, Samuel, buddy, old pal. Too bad, you know, uh, all those folks. Oh, anyway, yeah, so I'm a king, you're a prophet, we're good, right? And he goes, he comes to him cheerily. And then Samuel mur- like, just pops his bubble pretty serious. And so this, this, uh, this 1 Samuel 15, 33 is actually in like a lot of the World War II war crime trials that the Jews were doing on like the Nazis who were committing all these war crimes. They would oftentimes in the sentencing read 1 Samuel 15, 33 to the Nazis that they're about to hang. Uh, it'd say this, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. This makes me think... Uh, there's really two things that my, my parents would say uh, growing up. Uh, one, my dad would say, when you'd come and tattle, he's like, do you really want justice? Because you don't really want justice. You want mercy for you, justice for them. That's what you want. That was kind of our way of saying, I don't want to hear you tattling. <laughs> that was a function of that. Uh, the other thing is my mom would say from time to time, I mean, she would pray this over us, and I hated it when she would do it. It made me so mad. She would pray, Lord, I pray they get caught on their sin. And I'd be like, what are you doing? Stop praying that. Stop praying that. Are you nuts? 
you know, caught in your sin. Consequences plays out. End of verse 33. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. So what you reap. King Agag, king of the Amalekites, sovereign one, successful plunderer, pillager, doer of evil deeds. He's getting away with it. He's been getting away with it. He's been getting away with it for a long time. One of the things we see in this text is that justice delayed is not necessarily justice denied. And certainly that judgment delayed is not judgment denied. That we can be getting away with it for a long time, but we won't ultimately get away with it. And I read about King Agag getting hacked to pieces. And I think about another king who was hacked. Not for his sin, but for the sins of his people. Who stood and received the judgment that other people deserved. I think about you and I who deserve what happens to Agag and we don't get it. Because Jesus stood in our place that he's whipped when we should have been whipped. He's betrayed like we should have been betrayed. He's crucified like we should have been crucified. And if we're trusting in anything else to save us from the ways that we're like Agag, from the ways that we're like Saul, from the ways that we're like the Amalekites, we're foolish and we're not safe before God's judgment. But we serve a God who is holy and just. And apart from the blood of Jesus, that should terrify us. But the good news is that we are not apart from the blood of Jesus. So let me pray. Father, have mercy on us. God, just as you're grieved over Saul's sin, we know that you grieve over ours. I pray that we will share your heart, that we will share your mind. Lord, I know that you are kind to us and patient with us. God, help us see Saul's story and receive the warning. Let us also see your heart in the midst of it. And pray that we'll rest in the fact that nobody gets away with anything. God, even as we sing that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, I pray that we would come up under your authority and enjoy submit to your leadership. Amen.